Lord, we have come to you today and we have now sung with one voice to you, to the Lord. And now we come to seek out your word and help us now to live out your word with one heart. Lord, I thank you for this time that we can gather and worship you with our full hearts. Thank you for each person that has come here, each heart that now is gathered. We pray that your spirit would speak to each one of us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. There is one law or rule which nearly everyone in the world agrees is wrong to break. Across nations, tribes, cultures, and over multiple millennia, whether or not it's codified in writing, everyone believes that this is wrong. If I ask you, what is the worst crime that you could ever commit, what would you say? A lot of you said already, finish this sentence. I may not be perfect, but at least I haven't <laughs> killed anyone, right? And no, it's not driving slow in the fast lane. <laughs> we were watching a, a TV show recently where many, in which all kinds of lines were crossed all the time by the people in the show. And, but many other things in the show were viewed as wrong, but they're often tolerated as well. But when a recent plot line had someone actually, it turned out that they killed someone and then tried to cover it up, everyone was horrified. Right? It was utterly horrified. How could someone do that? Murder is largely seen as the most horrific thing that you could ever do, which wouldn't make sense if all we are is evolved beings pursuing survival of the fittest. But makes total sense if we are creatures with souls, each created in the image of God. But what if murder isn't the worst thing ever. Actually, that's phrased wrong. What if there are many other things that are just as bad in God's sight as murder? Wouldn't you want to know what those are so that you could avoid them? And or if you've already, if you find that you've already committed these crimes to be able to make things right, Let's open up our Bibles together to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we'll be starting in verse 21 today. We're spending the remainder of this summer going through the latter half of Matthew 5, looking at a number of, of radical challenges that Jesus gives to those who follow him, hopefully like most of us. And when it comes to our relationships with other image bearers in this world, those are as challenging as anything, right? They can be so hard and so easily harmed. But these relationships may just be more important than you ever imagined. Let's start. We'll read what we looked at last week from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This whole chapter is from his sermon. Starting in verse 17, Jesus says this. 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In that passage, we saw how Jesus claimed super high authority for himself. We also saw how he made this bold claim that he fulfilled all of God's word in the Old Testament. We also saw how even though the Old Testament is fulfilled, it's not abolished, right? Which means that we should still be seeking to follow God's word, all of it from beginning to end. This passage that we saw last week sets the scene and sets the tone for all that will follow in this chapter. Because in verse 21 and on, Jesus gives example after example of the righteousness that he wants from us, that righteousness that, that exceeds the scribes and Pharisees' righteousness, the, the deeper righteousness that comes from the law that is written in our hearts. And Jesus starts off here in verse 21, quoting from the sixth commandment of the Ten Commandments. And he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. You have heard that it was said. Of course they had heard this, that the Ten Commandments were extremely familiar to the Jewish people, though the Sixth Commandment, if you know where it comes from, it actually only says, you shall not murder, period. The second half of this verse that Jesus quotes probably comes from Numbers 35, where it talks about murderers actually getting the death penalty. And that law itself was an echo of what God said way back in Genesis 9. As for all people, he said, From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Everyone knew this. Murderers deserved to die. At the least, they'd be tried and judged by a court of law. Now, in Jesus' day, this law was taught by the rabbis and scribes as much as any other law. However, that's as far as their interpretation of this commandment went, what Jesus said there. You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. They essentially restricted the prohibition to murder alone, to, to homicide, essentially. So, don't commit homicide, and you're good. Right? You've kept that law. Now, you may think that sounds reasonable enough. And, I mean, it is the, the straightforward reading after all. But, as we're about to find out, Jesus disagreed. He disagreed with that limited interpretation of the law. Martin Lloyd-Jones says that the religious leaders had simply and very conveniently reduced it within bounds and measures designed to render them perfectly happy. 
and therefore they say that they have completely kept the law. Do not listen, Jesus says, to these Pharisees and scribes who say you are only in danger of the judgment when you actually murder a man. Instead, Jesus says, listen to what I have to say. It says in verse 22, but I say, but I say, I'm the one whose opinion really matters. So hear this. Now think about that. Jesus was essentially placing himself as authority over the Ten Commandments. He had come from God the Father. He knew what was up. He had even been there when the law was inscribed on stone tablets on Mount Sinai. If anyone had the right to give an authoritative interpretation of the law, it was Jesus. So what was his interpretation? He said that the law really had to do with what's in our hearts. So not just deeds, but thoughts and words. Not just murder, but anger, insults, and more. Look with me, verse 22. But I say, but I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This verse gives us the main point here. Jesus says, in essence, how we feel and what we say about others matters as much as what we might do to them. That's the point. How we feel and what we say about others matters as much as what we might do to them. Jesus lists off there three different crimes in his book, in escalating severity and in escalating deserved sentences. But did you see what's common with all three of them? They all have to do with other people and how we deal with other people. Verse 22 again, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now notice the lowest consequence that Jesus mentioned is being liable to judgment, which is the same punishment that was being prescribed for murder. It only goes up from there. And what did Jesus say deserved judgment? Anger. Anger, being angry with a brother, which refers to more than just physical brothers, but also spiritual brothers and sisters as well. So, let's have some straight talk here. How many of you have been angry at someone else in the last month? In the last week? Last 24 hours? Right? I know I'm guilty, right? Maybe at a family member, at a friend, at a fellow Christian or churchgoer, you've had that anger. Now, some of you might think, well, anger isn't always sinful, is it? 
And no, it's not. I mean, God himself has a righteous anger that is totally holy and pure. And sometimes we may feel anger like he does at sin or evil or injustice in our world around us. However, you and I both know that by far the majority of our anger is not righteous anger. We get angry when someone offends us. When someone hurts us, when someone's mean to us, when, when we don't get our way, when someone disagrees with us, when we feel cheated or slighted or hurt, when our, when our own expectations are not met by other people, when our pride is damaged, when other people are outside of our control. In other words, we get angry when we expect to be treated like God and we're not. More often than not, anger is caused by pride, selfishness, hatred, malice, revenge, you name it. And Jesus says that if you harbor anger in your heart toward another human being, that attitude, that heart attitude is as offensive, as reprehensible in God's sight as if you actually killed them. Even if that anger never explodes into rage or violence, it, it's still there in your heart. And whenever we allow ourselves to grow angry toward another person, Jesus says, we deserve judgment. Although that judgment Jesus is talking about is even weightier than a murder trial would be, because John Stott explains the reference must be to the judgment of God, since no human court is competent to try a case of inward anger. Sobering, isn't it? Right? That, that God's judgment stands to reckon with anyone who is angry with others. See how laughable the notion is that the standards are lower now under Jesus? And then Jesus goes further and says that when we give voice to our attitude, it's even worse. In another place, Jesus says that whatever comes out of our mouths comes from our hearts, that what we say exposes who we are in the deepest reaches of our being. And so he says... Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. The, the council in Jewish days was the next step up in judgment. Instead of a, a local municipal court, this was talking about the federal council, the, the national ruling body of, of leaders. In that day, it was the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. You might know, remember Jesus being brought before that council. In our day, it would be like a court case being, uh, being, heard all the, being passed up really all the way to the Supreme Court. But again, Jesus probably wasn't referring to a literal human court of law, but instead, someone needing to stand before the bar of God and answer for their crimes. What would call for such a severe penalty as that? Surely it's got to be abuse or adultery, right? No. You deserve to be brought to trial in God's court if you've merely 
insulted someone. Insulted someone. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. As you can see, you might be able to see in the footnotes there, to insult, it literally was saying to say raka to someone, which was an Aramaic insult of someone's intelligence. So the equivalent of calling someone uh, empty-headed, a nitwit, worthless, an idiot, something like that. Have you ever uttered insults like that before? Guilty as charged, right? Even if I haven't said them often to people's face, I've muttered them under my breath. I've certainly thought them in my heart. What's the big deal about insulting someone, though? Well, it demeans a fellow image bearer of God. It demeans an image bearer of God himself, which, if you think about it, is the exact reason that God said murder is wrong. We might not think of these things as even in the same ballpark, but God does. How is that fair? Because, as we'll see again and again, what's in your heart is what matters. What's in your heart is what matters most. And the consequences we see for our attitudes and our words are on par with those for our actions. And they're also eternal. Look at the last crime that Jesus brings up in verse 22. It says, And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now you may think, You fool, sure sounds just like an insult. Right? So what's the difference there? Well, think of who the fool was in Old Testament times. Right? In places like Psalms or Proverbs, it talks a lot about the fool. And the fool wasn't just stupid. The fool lacked wisdom and character. And they were often seen as the direct opposite of those who were godly. So to call someone, you fool, was more than an insult. It was perhaps even a curse on them. The, the scholar A.B. Bruce explains that, that raka, the insulting, expressed contempt for someone's head. It was like saying, you stupid, while you fool went deeper, expressing contempt for someone's heart and character, like saying, you scoundrel. You might think today of something like SOB or POS. That would be the equivalent. Now, maybe you've done this less often than insulting someone and far less than getting angry with them. I would hope so. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is implying that this is, in fact, a much more serious offense. But I think we'd be fooling ourselves if we think we've never cursed someone else. If not with a shout, with a whisper. Or at least with a seething thought. In a moment, blinded by anger or rage, wishing that someone was just not part of your life anymore. Wishing that someone was evicted from your family. Wishing that someone was excommunicated from your church. Maybe even wishing that God shared your hatred for them. Some of you may see this and you realize that you're even guilty of saying the words to of openly cursing someone else with some kind of bleep you or bleep them. Jesus says, this puts us in danger 
of hell. You see that? Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Hell, if you don't know, refers to a tormented eternity without hope and without God. Another translation says that cursing others makes us guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Now those who would say that, that a loving God would never send people, cast someone into hell, don't realize that God only consigns sinners to the place, to the fate that we absolutely and utterly deserve and the place that we're actually asking for by wanting to live without him. But I want you to notice something here. Jesus doesn't say that we're automatically doomed, does he? He's not saying, you know, if you've called someone a fool before, you're damned forever. Sorry, you're out of luck. No, he keeps saying, you're liable to this. You're liable to this. In other words, you're in danger of this. You are guilty, and this is what you deserve. If you're feeling discouraged or hopeless by that right now, stay tuned. Okay? There's a lot more to say. But these last couple phrases here, this verse just makes an eye-popping point, right? To, to borrow a cliche, words can kill. Words can kill. Even our thoughts can do deep damage. Another saying goes, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. <laughs> right? What kind of callous idiot came up? Wait, I probably shouldn't say that. <laughs> But the simple fact is, right, our words, our words can do unthinkable harm to those around us. Think about it this way. One single conversation, if it's hurtful enough, one single conversation could end any relationship in your life. Words have power. And if we use them carelessly and hurtfully, we better watch out. You may still think, though, I don't get what makes these thoughts or words so horrendous. I mean, I get that they're bad, but they don't seem that awful. I mean, deserving of, of death, deserving of hell. You may feel that the punishments don't fit the crime. So what's the big deal here? John Stott lays it out for us. He says, Now these things, angry thoughts and insulting words, may never lead to the ultimate act of murder, yet they are tantamount to murder in God's sight. Anger and insult are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. Our thoughts, looks, and words all indicate that as we sometimes dare to say, we wish he were dead. And there's the heart attitude. We don't even realize most of the time. Consider what 1 John 3.15 says. It says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We should step back and think about what we wish our anger, our insults, our curses could actually accomplish. 
right? We, we wish, we desire, we even might pray for some harm to befall the other person. Even if that's just the, the harshness of our attitudes or the bite in our words, we're wishing some kind of harm on them. Lloyd-Jones says that contempt, a feeling of scorn and derision, is the very spirit that ultimately leads to murder. Killing does not only mean destroying life physically, it means still more trying to destroy the spirit and the soul, destroying the person in any shape or form. Anyone still feeling innocent here? <laughs> we are murderous in our hearts. Probably not what you thought you'd hear today in church. <laughs> yeah, you might as well have killed somebody. We like to think, we like to think that we can follow the bare minimum of what God wants and get by with him. We, like, we just like the Pharisees saw, I think that the, the letter of the law, what is written here is all that matters. You shall not murder. Okay, I can do that. I won't do that. Great. And so we trick ourselves into thinking that we're pretty decent people. When Jesus is saying, no, no, you've got to see the spirit of the law. What is meant. We've got to see what God intended by it. What he wants most. And the spirit of the law here is that we have to lose our contempt of all kinds. Get rid of it. We've got to get to the heart. I mean, this, I think, speaks to our constant, really criminal underestimation of how bad sin is. I think part of Jesus' point, the whole point here, is, is that sin is far worse and far more dire than we ever imagined. That every sin, no matter how small in our estimation, is an offense to our Maker. That hate, envy, deceit, pride, or yes, even contempt go so against his nature that in his holiness, those sins cannot even be in his presence without being incinerated. We forget, or we take for granted, that our sins are so bad that somebody had to die for them. That Jesus had to die for our sins. That he actually became sin for us. To put this into perspective, God solemnly says here, you shall not murder, but by our sin, we effectively murdered Jesus, the Holy Son of God. The bad news is that sin is so bad that Jesus had to die. But the good news far outweighs the bad. That Jesus died for sin in order to make us holy, to make us clean, to bring us to God. That he didn't stay dead but rose from the grave in order to win the victory over death. That he sent his Holy Spirit to us to transform our sinful hearts into holy hearts like his. 
right? We may naturally give in to contempt, but the Spirit can help us not to. We may, through Him, we can grow in this. We can become patient and gentle and kind instead of angry. We can become loving instead of hateful or offensive. There's hope there. If you've already received Jesus as Lord of your life and, you, and this, is, this transformation has begun, thank God for that. Praise God for that. If you haven't yet done so, I would urge you to come to Jesus today to leave all of your death-deserving sin with him. After all, he's already died for it. And then make him Lord over your life. Submit to him, committing to walk in his ways. If you need some direction there, we'd love to help you. But this is something you can even do right now in your heart. You can come to him. And once we've been saved and forgiven by God, it leads to a radically different lifestyle. The rest of today's passage gets into some of the implications of this. Jesus gave this huge truth, right? How we feel, what we say, matters just as much as what we might do to others. And then he goes, so this is how I want you to live now as my followers. It's like, if you do this, you'll be in trouble. Do this, worse trouble. Do this, even worse. So don't live like that anymore. How do we do this? It goes beyond willpower and resolve. You need Jesus to do the work in your heart. You need his gospel every day. But it also goes beyond just passively receiving this, passively being saved by him. We're supposed to take action now as his people. It also goes beyond mere repression of unkind thoughts or actions or words. We need a, a positive goal, not just a, a negative avoidance. And thus, Jesus starts talking about reconciliation. Reconciliation, which is making things right between each other. He knows that we humans are inevitably going to face conflict with other humans. We're sinful. It's going to happen. So how is a Christian supposed to respond to conflict? How should we react to that? Obviously not with murder or anger or insulting or cursing. How? Our attitudes and words matter as much as anything. So, here's the application point. So, we need to be reconciled with others as quickly as possible. We should seek to be reconciled with others as quickly as possible, without delay. Over the next four verses, 23 to 26, Jesus gives us two different illustrations of reconciliation. But the main message of both is that reconciliation is urgent. It's urgent. If sinful responses to conflict are tantamount to murder, we have got to navigate conflict very carefully, and as we shall see, very promptly. Look at how Jesus says this in the first illustration, verse 23. So, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, 
leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. And maybe we should back up. Do you know what it means to be reconciled? Well, imagine if I was shopping at a store, and I added up all the things I was buying, and they cost $100. But then I go to the cash, and I go to pay, and the cashier charges me $150. Something is off, right? Something's wrong with the numbers. Something needs to be reconciled, in other words. Either I counted wrong, or they charged me wrong, or both. But once we figure out the mistake and we fix it, then you know those numbers have been reconciled. What was wrong has become right. Now translate that financial picture into the world of relationships, and you can still have a kind of reconciliation. Reconciliation means to make things right where things are wrong in our relationships. It means to make harmony where there's dissonance. Peace where there's conflict. And so when Jesus tells his disciples to interrupt their worship in order to be reconciled, he was telling them to make peace their number one priority. That it was crucial that they pursue reconciliation, that they reconcile relationships as speedily as possible. And why is this so urgent? You can tell that Jesus was hinting at a reason here, right? He was suggesting that if we don't reconcile, it will impact our relationship with God. So, we need to be reconciled with others as quickly as possible to protect our relationship with God. We need to pursue reconciliation in order to protect our relationship with God. And that's because when we're in conflict with others, when our relationships are strained, it disturbs our hearts and disrupts our hearts' worship of God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, Our Lord tells us, may I put this with reverence, we should, in a sense, even keep God waiting rather than stay. We must get right with our brother and then come back. In the sight of God, there is no value whatsoever in an act of worship if we harbor a known sin. Go and put it right, he says. You cannot be right with God until you put yourself right with man. Let's read the the case study that Jesus gives here again. Okay, so if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Now this, of course, is, was a picture that was directly applicable to Jews before Jesus' death on the cross, when he made a sacrifice once and for all. So that while people were still streaming to the temple yearly at least to, to offer sacrifices there, but the, the principle behind this still stands true for believers. Even without an altar, without sacrifices, Here's a, here's a modern parallel situation for you. Imagine you're in church. Not hard to do right now. <laughs> Imagine you're in church, so you're singing your heart out. And all of a sudden, a thought pops in your head. Maybe an unwelcome thought. But you remember, your Christian friend, Jesse, is holding something against you. They're upset with you about something. They have a, a grievance. Maybe they're holding a grudge against you. 
And if you remember this, even in the middle of a worship service, it calls for action. You should leave right then and there, go outside, give Jesse a call. Maybe you need to own up to something. Maybe you need to say sorry. Maybe you need to ask for forgiveness. You need to do whatever you can to make peace right then and there. After that phone call is finished, then you should come back inside and worship again. With your relationship hopefully restored, with your heart free from conflict, which should make your worship of God that much more meaningful. Maybe that sounds simplistic to you. I know conflicts are, <laughs> they are not simple at all. They're often very complicated. Maybe it won't be so easy as making a phone call. Maybe making peace will take some time. But, Look at these verses, and do you think Jesus is demanding anything less than pursuing immediate reconciliation? That's what he wants us to do. Some of you might object, well, what if what they're holding against me isn't a valid offense? And not to sound heartless, but I would respond, what about it? Right? Jesus, notice Jesus doesn't say to go admit guilt for something you didn't do. He doesn't say that. But he does say to go be reconciled, whatever that involves. It might not mean admitting guilt, but you need to reconcile. I'll say this, not in all, but in most situations of conflict, there is fault on both sides. And even if your part is very minor. There's probably something that you can apologize for. And that may open the door to a lot more further healing. Others, you might wonder, well, what if no one has anything against me, but what if I'm holding something against someone else? I think the principle is similar. That conflict can disrupt your worship. And thus, peace is still urgent. That may or may not involve going to the person who hurt you, but I do know that it means dealing with the anger or bitterness that is in your heart and reaching a place where you can forgive them, if in the very least in your heart. If you need help with that process or you need, even need some counseling here, let's talk about that. We want to help you. Romans 12.18, though, is particularly relevant. It says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In other words, sometimes it won't depend on you. And sometimes it won't be possible. But so far as it depends on you, you take action and you pursue peace. In the long run, I think it's hard to say that reconciliation is more important than worship in the long run, but it is probably more urgent now. If Jesus left his throne in heaven where he received worship, 
in order to reconcile us to God, then we can certainly leave whatever we are doing to be reconciled to those around us. Even today, if the Holy Spirit has placed someone on your heart, you're not getting along with them, you may need to scrap your plans this afternoon. You need to make that call. You maybe need to write a message. Go see someone. You may even need to leave before the end of our singing time to go make things right. You may even need to skip potluck. (laughs) Or maybe you need to pull someone aside here at Calvary for a few minutes. If you value your relationship with God, and you want nothing hindering that, you'll do this. Jesus finishes up this passage by giving a second illustration, really just hammer home these points. He says, verse 25, Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now this picture might be a little bit more confusing to us because we wonder, is Jesus saying that if we don't make peace, we'll go to hell? Is that what he's saying there? Or, or that we'll be judged by God until we pay off our relational debts? I mean, if you think too hard about this, you may even be able to read something like purgatory into this. But I don't think that was Jesus' point at all. He was just offering an everyday life example of what it looks like to prioritize peace over clinging to a conflict. I don't even think he was offering his disciples some free, good legal advice. He was more saying, seek to make peace quickly or things may only get worse for you. That's his point. Make peace quickly or things are going to get worse. Liam Morris says, failure to take advantage of the opportunity of reconciliation means that one must bear the penalty of being unreconciled. Just like the picture before of leaving a sacrifice at an altar, this one also involves someone with a grievance against us, and it makes the, the same, has the same lesson for us, the, the pressing need for quick action in the very act of worship, on the very way to court. To bring this into today, just a, a parallel picture, if you had unpaid debts and you got sued by a creditor to get his money back, you should really try to make things right sooner than later, right? Even if that means wiring the money from your bank account in your Uber on the way to the courthouse. Otherwise, you'll go to trial, you'll be found guilty, it'll be too late. And you'll end up paying the penalty. Maybe in jail until things are finally made right. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. In essence, he's saying, settle out of court. Don't elongate your quarrel. The, The stakes are too high. Relationships are too valuable. Eternity is coming too rapidly. What does this mean for us? Like I've been saying, make things right 
as quickly as possible. Kids, if you are having a fight with your parents, or the brother or sister, stop and think, Jesus wants me to live in peace. I need to make things right now. Now. Parents, you're getting angry with your kids. Be humble enough to confess your sin to them. Go to them and make things right with your children quickly. Same goes for husbands and wives. Seek to settle marital spats fast. Singles, you get in a, a big disagreement with a Christian friend, maybe an ex-friend now. Get over your pride. Make the first move to hash things out. Everyone, okay? Don't let the sun go down on your anger or on others' anger. Stott concludes this way. How seldom do we heed Christ's call for immediacy of action? If murder is a horrible crime, malicious anger and insult are horrible too. And so is every deed, word, look, or thought by which we hurt or offend a fellow human being. We need to be more sensitive about these evils. We must never allow an estrangement to remain, still less to grow. We must not delay to put it right. If we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, we must take every possible step to live in peace and love with all men. Now sometimes pursuing peace will seem to make things better right away. And sometimes, it will only seem to make things worse, even much worse. But I believe that if you obey Jesus and you do what he says to do, things aren't actually getting worse. Because his perspective is what matters most. And at least in his eyes, things are getting better. Because like I've said, our eternity is fast approaching. Judgment is coming. And that shouldn't scare believers, but it should keep us sober and, and warn us. It also should remind us of Jesus' promise, just a handful of verses prior to this. In verse 9, Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. When we pursue peace, it shows that we are sons and daughters of our Heavenly Father. And on the day that Christ returns, it will be, it will be revealed to all that that is who we are. So don't hesitate. Don't hesitate. Because Jesus says, and if Jesus says, we better listen. Can you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, we come to you now and you see all of our hearts and you know how guilty we are before you. And so today we come and we throw ourselves on your mercy at the foot of the cross where we can be forgiven. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Pray that we would live today, this week, this month in its shadow and that as you gave everything to reconcile with us. May we seek reconciliation with those around us. We love you. We trust you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.